And welcome back to Regionally Speaking. I'm your host, Dee Dotson. The Purdue University Northwest Center for Global Studies will host a free day-long conference on immigration Thursday, September 28th on PNW's Hammond campus. The conference will feature a keynote address along with panel discussions with each session including time for questions and discussion. A community and student information tabling session will allow attendees opportunities to speak with organizations working on immigration. Joining us now to talk about the conference is Lee Arts, Ph.D., Director of the Center for Global Studies. Lee, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. I'm happy to be with you. Lee, so immigration has been at the forefront of all of the headlines in recent years, particularly as migrants continue to cross our southern border. And opinions vary on both sides of the aisle in terms of how we handle that humanitarian crisis. But before we take a deep dive into immigration, again, as I've shared, you are the director for the Center for Global Studies. Take a moment to talk about this department's mission and purpose. Well, the Center for Global Studies was actually formed maybe a decade ago. Um, But in the last two years, uh, we have an advisory committee made up of five faculty from, uh, from PNW. And we had decided over the past two years that our focus should be primarily on immigration because it is a international issue, uh, obviously something that global studies is interested in. And we had a number of faculty that did research on uh, immigration and social relations and cultural differences. Um, so it just seemed like a, a good fit for us. And we have had uh, several panels over the past couple years. Uh, I know we did a panel on, on the COVID virus and how different nations were responding to that. We had a panel with Dr. Larry Williamson on, uh, on the Ukraine. And we've had a couple of panels on immigration from Haiti and Honduras. And we're sponsoring this conference coming up September 28th on immigration, which primarily focuses on Latin America. Let's talk about the day-long conference. This year's theme is Immigration, Conflict, Climate, and Consequences that will be held again on the Hammond campus as part of the university's Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations. So why a conference? Well, we uh, think it's important enough for uh, our students and our faculty and the larger community um, in northwest Indiana to be able to discuss uh, the different dimensions of the immigration uh, conflict. Um, And part of that is in the title. Um, We understand that people don't just one day wake up and say, oh, I'm going to go to another country. They kind of don't have a choice because of some conflict that's happening, whether that would be like a coup in Honduras or the repression against the indigenous people in uh, Guatemala or the rise of violence in Mexico. People kind of find themselves in a condition where there's a conflict and they need for their own safety and the safety of their family to uh, migrate. It's not like they want to leave their families or leave their um, livelihood or if they're agricultural workers, they don't want to leave that because that's how they survive. But they really don't have a choice when the conflict gets so dangerous that it threatens their lives. Um, We also understand that climate is a major contributor to migration because in many cases, uh, the increase in temperatures, the increase in uh, 
arid climates, the increase in fires, all of this makes it impossible because of climate to continue the kind of lifestyle that you might have in your home country. So you begin to look for where where you might go. And the United States has always been uh, one of the places that people have looked to for the possibility of having a comfortable lifestyle. So we named the conference Conflict to deal with questions of conflict, climate, and then what are the consequences of both of those uh, conditions on migration. Uh, in this case, primarily Latin America, but we recognize that internationally there's more migration from the Middle East. I mean, there's 6 million migrants right now in Turkey from Syria. Um, and with the U.S. Uh, leaving Afghanistan, the, uh, there's an increase in Afghan uh, refugees. And likewise, from the Sahil in Africa, there's a big increase of Africans trying to get to Europe. Um, and then we also would have to add into that the number of Ukrainian refugees uh, that have left with the Ukraine war. I'm glad that you kind of broke down this year's theme because I never gave consideration for climate change being a motivator for migration. And so I think that you putting that look, that spin, if you will, on it will help people to further understand, again, as you shared, why people have made the sacrifice to unfortunately leave their livelihoods, leave their families yeah. behind, leave yeah. what they yeah. know behind. And uh, I think it's particularly important for uh, American students, the general public, because we often hear of a war, like the U.S. and Iraq, right. the U.S. Uh, in Syria, but we don't understand the environmental outcomes of that war. I mean, the United States uh, blew up oil refineries in Syria. They, they uh, pretty much took away the Mesopotamia marsh that was responsible for of producing a lot of the agriculture in Iraq. Um, at the same time, the, the, the destruction of water facilities and oil refineries and infrastructure in uh, Syria led to toxic air, toxic water, toxic soil. And as a consequence, we see millions of Syrians uh, fleeing because they can no longer... I mean, think about it. If you're growing crops, for instance, mm -hmm. if you're a farmer in northern Syria, and suddenly the, all the water that had been used for your growing crops is now polluted because there was a leakage from a oil refinery, or for that matter, if you even lived in a city, and suddenly the, the oil refinery had been destroyed and the water infrastructure had been destroyed, you couldn't drink clean water, you couldn't use the water to grow your crops, uh, you really, right, the destruction was yeah. contaminated the soil, contaminated the air, created toxic waste almost everywhere. And it's not something that we see, right? We may see mm -hmm. visions of a missile going somewhere, hitting someone, and then the broadcaster says, look, they destroyed a, you know, a, a, a den of uh, surgeons, but they don't show you what happens after that destruction and how it has a devastating consequence for the people that live in the region. Now, Lee, I, I took a look at the agenda, and you have some heavy hitters, if you will, on deck to serve as speakers for the day. Can you take a moment to give us a sneak peek into what the day will actually look like? Yes, it's a, it's a day-long conference. Uh, we start at 11 in the morning with, as you said, some outstanding speakers. Dr. Chiara Ghali from the University of Chicago 
just wrote a book on um, the changing status of youth refugee, youth refugees seeking asylum in the United States and the difficulties that they face um, being treated with respect and being treated uh, and being allowed to uh, seek asylum. So she's an outstanding speaker. We also have uh, Claudia Lucero, who is the uh, executive director of the Chicago Religious Leadership Network on Latin America, who's done outstanding work on uh, re refugee and immigration uh, reform. And then we have, at, at 11 o'clock, we also have Michael Jimenez, who is an immigration attorney, so he'll be able to talk about in that very first panel what are some of the uh, rights and consequences for immigrants in the United States. We then uh, take a break for uh, lunch. We're going to have a buffet for the participants in the day's events, um, and there's no charge for the lunch. There's no charge for registration. Uh, at 2 o'clock, we follow up with two keynote speakers, uh, Dr. Raul Olka, who teaches actually on migration, conflict, and climate at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend. He's joining us. He's one of the keynote speakers. And the other one is Dr. Margaret Power from IIT in Chicago, who just recently wrote a book about Puerto Rico uh, and Puerto Rican immigration. So it's quite a lineup. We end the, we end the panels uh, at 3.30. Right. With, uh, Mm -hmm. with uh, a few people, including Alfredo Estrada. I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah. Alfredo. He's a frequent yeah, contributor yeah, right here a, on Lakeshore Public Media. Mm -hmm. Yes, and he's also a former graduate from PNW before he went and got his uh, law uh, degree and became an uh, immigration attorney. So he's he, that should be a very powerful. Then we have a speaker from Indianapolis, uh, James Mulholland, who works with the Community for Cooperative development in Indianapolis, and he's going to be speaking about their uh, work on behalf of immigration and immigration reform. So it's quite a it's quite an event uh, for the whole day. Um, we have a short break from 5 to 7 where there will be tabling. Uh, area groups that are working on immigration issues will be setting up in the uh, uh, alumni hall up at uh, the Student Union Building at PNW in Hammond. And they'll be sharing their materials and uh, give everybody an opportunity to talk with them. And then we close the day with a, a theater presentation of Ceviche in Pittsburgh, which was written by one of the uh, members of the Advisory Board of Global Studies, uh, Jose Castro uh, Urosti. He will be uh, on site. Um, after they present the play, there will be an opportunity for people to discuss the play, the meaning. and. All of the events during the day uh, have uh, 30 to 40 minutes for conversation, contribution, discussion from all of the participants, uh, students, uh, public uh, participants, and, and others. So I, I think it should be a, a wonderful experience for everybody, and it certainly is timely. So all, all are invited. Uh, I... I don't have in front of me, unfortunately, uh, where to register, but you can go to the PNW uh, webpage and type in Center for Global Studies, and it will pop up um, how to register in advance, which makes sure that you have a seat and also have a snack. <laughs> now, 
Dr. Lee, you know, some of our listeners right here in Northwest Indiana who are tuning into our conversation, they may say to themselves that they can see on local news outlets a rising population of migrants being housed in and around the city of Chicago. But that's right there, right? That's across the state line, and that's not a concern right here in the region. Let's park on what the immigration population looks like right here, because it may not necessarily look the same. Some of our neighbors could, in fact, be immigrant workers working hard towards the American dream. But more importantly, I want you to speak to the concerns and issues that have been discovered via the research from the PNW Center for Global Studies locally as well as nationally. Well, that's a complex uh, situation that we face, not just in northwest Indiana, but uh, across the country. Right. Uh, Part of the problem is the whole idea that there are undocumented workers, that you presumably need a work visa or some other uh, immigration permission to even cross the border. Um, And what the consequence of that is, is there tends to be a lot of uh, profiling. Um, People that don't have uh, papers or the legitimate visas are kind of at the beck and call of whatever employer they're working for because they could be dismissed easily. So their ability to get decent working conditions or decent wages is severely handicapped because they could be, right, the employer could drop a dime on them at any any given minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that happens is there tends to be, uh, it's, it's, kind of the larger racial superstructure in the United States, there tends to be a, a, an animosity, uh, sometimes not even disguised animosity, towards uh, Latin Americans, whether you're from Mexico or whether you're from Honduras or farther south. There's this, uh, there's this concept that somehow you're here in, in taking jobs and you're taking the benefits that you haven't uh, contributed for. But the but the data shows that most immigrants to the United States are paying more than their fair share to um, support health care, support public education, and they don't get any uh, undue, undue benefit. But they do suffer from that perception that somehow they're threatening American jobs, they're threatening the American way of life. And that creates tremendous turmoil, both for people that are uh, do have visas and documentation or may even be citizens, but they're still looked at askance because somehow they're immigrants, so to speak. Uh, so it's a very it's a very volatile situation, I think. Um, and it, it flies in the face of the whole history of the United States where there's been different surges of immigration from Poland and Italy and Europe and now Eastern Europe uh, which all seems to be, because it happened decades ago, seems to be, oh, we're now all part of the American culture, but the recent immigrants from Haiti or Latin America are somehow suspect. And that creates, uh, what, <laughs> animosity. Sometimes it right. creates violence, and it always creates a difficult conversation. So we're hoping with the conference that some of these issues will be uh, addressed and uh, the opportunity to exchange perspectives on these will uh, allow all of us to have that discussion. Lee, before I let you go, you know, you were just speaking about proper documentation, profiling, and I think you, you, you've kind of touched on, on this 
comment that I'm going to post to you right now. So I'm thinking about the opening session, Immigration Rights and Obstacles, and I want to get your opinion on a recent court filing by the ACLU of Indiana and the National Immigration Law Center. They filed a suit against the state of Indiana challenging House Enrolled Act 1050. Now let me just give you a little bit of background on, on that piece of legislation. This legislation creates a pathway for individuals on humanitarian parole to obtain Indiana's driver's licenses or identification cards, but only if they are from Ukraine. Now, the lawsuit claims that by allowing individuals from only that country to obtain an ID, but not permitting the same opportunity for refugees from, let's just say, Haiti, as you were speaking about Haitian refugees. The suit says that House Enrolled Act 1050 represents national origin discrimination and that it's unconstitutional. So you kind of touched on this in, in your previous response, but I wanted to get your opinion on this lawsuit. I know you haven't had an opportunity to look at the suit itself, but could you kind of share yeah. your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I don't know that particular lawsuit or what the status of it is, but I do think that there's some basis for that claim. It's it's obvious that you have singled out Ukrainians for uh, special and rapid uh, access to, I guess, all the way up to a citizenship, but certainly driver's license and other um, acceptance for, for immigration to the United States, but you still deny that to uh, millions of people worldwide. It, 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 to me, it's an act of uh, racism. It's, it's hard not to see it that way. I mean, Ukrainians, even the, the news media early on in the Ukraine wars, they would say, well, the Ukrainians, they're people just like us. They're blonde, blue-eyed Christians, not like those people from uh, the Middle East that are used to this kind of violence. This is something that uh, Europeans aren't used to used to. So somehow it's okay that there's violence and repression and uh, sanctions uh, that the U.S. has against Syria or Venezuela or many other countries in Latin America. And it's okay to prevent that immigration at the border, even though the the laws presumably allow asylum for uh, many conditions that people face in their home country. But you have decided, well, the Ukrainians are an exception to that because they're, like I said, mm-hmm. they're white, they're blonde, they're blue-eyed, they're Christian, they're Europeans, they're like us, not like these other unwashed, undeserving uh, victims of repression or conflict or climate in other parts of the world. And that, I mean, again, I haven't seen the lawsuit, but it certainly seems like that is on the face of it, discriminatory by accepting this one small section of the world and denying it to the entire rest of the world, which is, um, uh, on the face of it, I would say it's obviously discriminatory and spreads heavily of uh, racial, uh, racial division. Thank you for sharing your opinion on it. That seems to be the sentiment with those that are in support of the the suit. Lee, you know, our conversation today um, has added for me another level of understanding and certainly another level of of empathy. And so I thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking to not only talk about the one day conference, but also to give 
more context on the immigration and should I say humanitarian crisis that is happening in and around not only Northwest Indiana, but across our country. So I thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Well, you're welcome, Dee, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. Lee Arts, Ph.D., is the director for the Center for Global Studies at Purdue University Northwest. He is a chair, faculty senate, and curriculum committee member. Immigration, Conflict, Climate, and Consequences Day-Long Conference is part of the PNW's Hispanic Heritage Month celebration. The conference is Thursday, September 28th at PNW's Hammond Campus and will start at 11 a.m., in the Student Union and Library Building. Registration is free. For more information, you can visit pnw.edu forward slash immigration hyphen conference. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. According to a survey of employers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in August well above the expectations for an increase of 170,000 jobs. Job growth has slowed substantially in 2023 to a sustainable pace. The labor force increased and wage growth slowed somewhat. Even the increase in the unemployment rate is good news as it came from a larger labor force and not a drop in employment. Joining us now with an economic outlook for the month of September is PNC Financial Services Group economist Ershang Liang. Ershang, number one, welcome to Lakeshore Public Media, and thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dee, for having me today. It's really my honor, and we appreciate this opportunity to be here today with you to talk about the U.S. and regional economy. Okay, Yershong, so we just celebrated the long Labor Day weekend, a traditional time of the year when consumers see a lot of incentives to shop around for big ticket items like autos and furniture and, of course, appliances. What are you and your colleagues at PNC Financial Services seeing in terms of how consumers are feeling? Are they optimistic or are they somewhat cautious? Uh, hi, uh, Dee. I think, uh, you know, from the recent release on consumer spending last week, we see it still grew at 0.6% in July, and that is actually faster than earlier months this year and was still strong in the U.S. You know, details show consumers were transferring spending from durable goods to services when the Federal Reserve Bank started to, you know, raising interest rate back in March 2022. And until now, in recent months, we still see accelerated a bit consumer spending across durable goods, non-durable goods, and services. You know, but I expect consumer spending to weaken in the coming months because of the high interest rate environment we are in right now. Uh, there is a lag between, you know, when the policy was announced until it takes full effect in two. So I think it will continue to work through the economy and weigh on consumers to the cost and some of the labor market changes. Uh, and in fact, in July, there was a bit slack already observed in recreational services, as well as spending on sports, recreational vehicles. I know Indiana has the major recreational vehicle manufacturing industry that is important to the state's economy. So, you know, the heavy toll from interest rate and slowing consumer spending RVs will be a drag to the state's economy in the near term. Uh, and on the other hand, likely we can consumer spending on goods producing industry by end of this year will also hurt the logistic industry. And on the other hand, consumers are already feeling the pressure from softening labor market. 
there are, uh, according to a survey, you know, from the conference board, consumers' expectations are they are showing less confidence about future economies such as employment and income levels. Urshang, we just talked about the spending we're seeing out there. But what about the wages consumers are earning and the jobs that exist? Tell us if it favors the sentiment that we see out there. Yep. Uh, so we, we, well, I do expect that the consumer sentiment is going to, you know, uh, worth uh, a little bit in the future. Because, you know, uh, you know, based on the recent the job reports released last week, we see unemployment rate rose to 3.8% from 3.5%. And uh, however, but it actually rose for good reasons. We see a growing labor force uh, with more people encouraged. And actually, uh, they, are, they start to seeking jobs right now. Uh, you know, uh, but still, in the long run, potential labor force growth around 125,000. The job growth, uh, you know, at 180,000 is not sustainable. We see the non-farm payroll job growth was strong in August, but you know, uh, by looking at the trend, the three-month average job growth is slowing. We do see the job market is softening. The job growth, you know, was above 500,000 last July. Now, you know, at around 187,000. And uh, I still think that the job market is a little bit overheated. On the one hand, you know, uh, it's making the Fed soft landing possible, which to control the U.S. inflation without causing contraction in the economy. Uh, you know, we see a little bit rising unemployment rate, but it's still very low right now at 3.8%. But again, it is also making the fast job tougher as, you know, with this tight labor market, uh, you know, the wage growth is still well above the Federal Reserve Bank's uh, inflation target at 2%, which will also continue to contribute to the inflation in the economy. Okay, so Urshan, before I let you go, the Feds are meeting in a few weeks on September 19th, as a matter of fact. Should we be nervous or calm? What are you and your colleagues at PNC Financial Services expecting? I think that, you know, in the coming FOMC at PNC, we expect no near-term federal funds rate hikes or rate cuts by end of this year or in the meeting uh, on, in, in September. The reason is that as we talk about the U.S. labor market, it is softening. Uh, we do talk about, you know, uh, the job growth numbers. It is on a downward trend. Uh, the three three months average numbers were uh, going down and uh, much lower pr- uh, compared to previous, you know, uh, the beginning of 2023. Uh, so it sets the tone that the Fed will not hike the interest rate in the near term as conditions in the economy are changing uh, towards that favor, uh, you know, a more balanced labor market. And on the other hand, we are seeing cooling effects of the labor market changes on consumer demand that we talk about. And I do think that, uh, you know, the high interest rate will continue to weigh on consumer demand as well as consumer sentiment and, and the wage growth will continue to slow. However, right now, the wage growth is still elevated at 4.3%. And that is actually higher than the long run average around 3 to 3.5% that the Federal Reserve Bank actually prefers. And inflation remains elevated at 3.3%. Core inflation is also much higher uh, with, you know, a higher a living cost such as shelter inflation is still high, uh, but the, we are getting closer there. Uh, and uh, uh, I expect you know there will be no near term rate cuts from the Federal Reserve Bank, but also you know no rate hike in the uh, FOMC meeting coming two weeks from now. 
Urshang Leung is an economist with PNC Financial Services Group. Urshang, again, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. And we look forward to having you back with us next month with a look at the local, statewide, and national economy. Thank you, Dee. As economists from PNC Financial Services Group agree, the July jobs report was welcome news for the Federal Reserve. Even the increase in the unemployment rate is good news as it came from a larger labor force and not a drop in employment. The combination of solid job growth in the household survey combined with a much bigger increase in the labor force is a positive development for the labor market and for the inflation outlook. For more information on the latest economic analysis, visit PNC.com. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. From inflation to interest rates to market volatility, from inflation to interest rates to market volatility, it's no wonder many retirees are looking for ways to boost their retirement income, but some are looking in the wrong places. A staggering 37% of baby boomers are holding more equity than experts recommend for their life stage, according to new data from Fidelity. With the urge to bridge investment gaps or to compensate for portfolio shortcomings, some boomers are tempted to take on more stock market risk. Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer is here with us today to explain the potential consequences baby boomers can face if their stock exposure is currently too high and how investors can evaluate and adjust their current stock exposure to reduce their overall risk. Greg, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks for having me, Andy. According to Fidelity's data, 37% of baby boomers are holding on to more stocks than they should. What are the consequences of boomers holding a high percentage of stocks in their portfolio? Well, Dee, it's important that investors of all ages, you know, keep an eye on their investments, you know, because holding on to too high of a percentage of stocks when you're near or in retirement can have consequences for the baby boomers. And, and that's because baby boomers generally right now, late 50s, to late 70s, and if they aren't already in retirement, they're generally very close to retirement, meaning, you know, if the equity market has a major loss, then, you know, this group of investors, they don't have the time to recover, you know, to build up their reserves again. And as a result, they may have to live out their remaining years with a lower pool of money than they initially planned. Greg, I'm going to be honest with you, that sounds quite stressful. Now, while everyone is different, I assume that many adults have their peak earning years in their early 40s and 50s. And if they're still working beyond that, then they don't have the larger income coming in to make up for the market losses as well. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's true, Dee. And, you know, to build it up, to build upon that, it's it's really the, the critical years, we call it the red zone or the five years before and the 10 years after retirement that are really the most crucial when it comes to, uh, for retirement savers because during that time, if you experience any type of markets that are down or investor loses even a small percentage of their portfolio, that could shave several years off their retirement savings and they're subject to sequence of return risk. Many listeners can hear what you're saying, but can you provide a concrete example of what this means in the real world? Yeah, so let's say, of course, keeping math simple, let's say you had a million dollars invested in the stock market for your retirement, and 
after a market downturn, let's say you lost 25%, so now your portfolio is worth 750000 So if you were planning on using that money, let's say for the next 20 years, you know people might say, hey, I can draw 50000 a year from my million, whereas a portfolio worth 750000 would provide substantially less because if you don't adjust that, um, the principal won't have the time horizon to recover and you'll erode the principal and, and, and run a higher risk of running out of money. That's a huge difference for retirees, and any amount over $10,000 per year can be a lifestyle change, I I would think. Now, let's use your example that someone has $50,000 a year to live on in retirement. When they look 20 years into the future, $50,000 won't go as far as it does today. Am I correct? You're exactly right. And, you know, many people in planning often forget to factor in inflation. It's crucial that you do because you still need to invest. If you don't invest, Your dollars will be worth less in the future from a monetary standpoint, like you mentioned, and just won't buy the same type of things because of inflation. So there's also a risk of not investing. So the inflation we've been experiencing makes you think, you know, what will eggs cost in the future, car, healthcare, you know, costs in the future. So we hope to have the largest amount of funds possible in our retirement when we retire. And that's why you don't want to be reckless with your market risk, but position assets for purpose. Okay, so how does someone figure out this risky riddle, if you will? Well, it can be a riddle for those who are new to investing. There's an ideal spot where you want to take enough risk to reach your financial retirement goals, but not too much risk where you panic, sell, and miss out on market gains. And and that's really the big risk is letting the emotional decisions become part of your process. So most people should start by evaluating what their appetite for market volatility is or what their risk tolerance is. For listeners new to investing, what is risk tolerance? In simple terms, Dee, it's the investor's ability to endure both financially and psychologically, you know, the potential of losing money on their investments. You know, so an example, if you have 75% of your savings in the market and that amount makes you uncomfortable, you may need to consider moving a portion or more of your holdings into an account that's not tied to the market. You know, because if you don't and you panic, then it's not going to recover. So smart investors evaluate their investments regularly, ensure that you know they're tied back to their specific financial and life goals and time horizons. And when they do this, it ensures that their holdings are properly aligned and they have a plan so they don't panic for the when the volatility occurs. Okay, so then how do investors estimate how much risk to take? Well, a good place to start is to create a customized plan specific to your individual needs and goals. And there's a couple, three items that you can use. One is uh, like your investment timeline, right? The amount of risk that you take often depends on, you know, your age and when you plan on retiring. As you approach retirement, typically you don't want all your money subject to the same volatility. You shouldn't be taking as much risk and likely don't want too high of investments tied up in the stock market. So you can move more risky investments to conservative vehicles to reduce your risk exposure as your timeline shortens. Also, it's about your experience. So if you're just starting to invest, it's wise to begin by educating yourself on investing and taking a little risk and what that means. You know, those with a lot of knowledge of investing are often more comfortable to weather the storm, you know, investing more in capital. So as you gain more knowledge and experience, you can create a more complementary combination of investments and build from there. And then finally, the third thing, you know, your goals. What are your goals? And the goals also need to be factored in when deciding how much risk 
you know, what you would be exposed to. You know, if you're saving for a child's college education or your retirement, then you likely don't want to take as much risk with those funds if the time horizon is shorter. But if you have disposable income and you can take more risk, that could be used for more of the longer term needs like battling inflation that we spoke to earlier uh, to combat those increasing costs, knowing that, you know, we have a time horizon. So if you purpose these assets understand the time horizon um, and understand that markets are going to have the volatility, you should be more prepared and not make the emotional decisions that could you know, wreak havoc on your plan. Greg, so you have shared a lot of information today for this retirement risky riddle. And I just have to ask you, do you have any final words that you would like to share with our listening audience? Yeah. I mean, risk tolerance, you know, it's the, it's the first of several factors when developing you know, your financial investment or retirement plan. And it often changes with the different stages of your life. Again, sequence of return risk is, is it crucial to understand what that is because that's what could be very devastational to portfolio balances. So talk to a qualified professional, have them adjust your portfolio according, but create a plan. And, and in that plan, understand the purpose of those assets and create proper time horizons. We use the bucket plan. You know, there's a book out there that you can buy and uh, it will talk about how to position those assets for purpose. And then once you identify that purpose, it's a lot easier to understand and tolerate volatility for funds that you're not going to need right away. Greg Hammer is the president and CEO of Hammer Financial Group in Cherville. Greg, as always, you always share great tips and tools to help all of us plan for our retirement. And so I thank you once again for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Dee. And you can find the book, The Bucket Plan, Protecting and Growing Your Assets for a Worry-Free Retirement by author Jason L. Smith online, wherever you buy books including on Amazon. This is Lakeshore Public Media, WLPR-FM, Lowell.